Welcome to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, artist Paul Evans and physicist Andrew Parnell answer crowdsourced questions about light, the universe, and what it's like working together. Nanocade. Hi, I'm Paul Evans. I'm an artist based in Sheffield, and I've worked on four projects for the Festival of the Mind since the very first one, eight years ago in 2012. I'm currently working with Dr Andrew Parnell from the Department of Physics and Astronomy on two new artworks for our exhibition Nanocade, which will be opening in September as part of the Festival of the Mind 2020. Hi, I'm, I'm Andy Parnell. Um, I'm a physicist uh, who's worked in Sheffield for a number of years, uh, studying nanoscale science and polymer materials as well as biological materials. And I've had the good fortune to work with Paul a number of times and uh, looking forward to our discussion today. Okay, so welcome to our podcast, Light, the Universe and Everything. A quick zoom through the universe from intergalactic space to the scale of subatomic particles with a short break en route to enjoy the view at human scale and discuss a few ideas regarding art and science. The questions that frame our journey were crowdsourced from the general public, artists and leading scientists via Facebook and Twitter during a week or so in July earlier this year. We're very grateful to those who have contributed to this podcast with their generous curiosities. Thank you, John, Coralie, Mike, Mark, Zeta, Stephanie, Rachel, another Mark, Tanya, Bruce, Kath and Mitch. In an ideal world, we would have recorded our very kind interrogators reading out their own questions, but aimed to social distancing, this just wasn't possible. The aim has been to organise these questions so that they form a journey from the outer reaches of the universe to the extraordinary inner worlds of tiny subatomic particles in the quantum realm, from the very, very big to the very, very small. By an extraordinary cosmic coincidence, human beings appear to be just about in the middle of this scale in terms of our physical stature, which gives us an extraordinary viewpoint at more or less the centre of everything that we currently know about. Yeah, we, we get fascinated by the very large objects in the sky, the stars and, and, the, and the galaxies, but we also get fascinated by plants and animals in our everyday surroundings, but to see what we're going to talk about today. This is not to say that the cosmos revolves around us, like ancient people used to think the universe revolved around the Earth. Rather, it's a case of the universe not really having a centre at all. Which is a very puzzling um, idea that it doesn't have a centre, but uh, we'll come back to that later on anyway. I do, however, think that this decentered perspective might help us to take a more humble, engaged view of nature. A view from a very privileged perspective, actually. Something to be extremely grateful for, rather than a somewhat imperious, godlike view as rulers of all we survey. Accepting this lack of centre might be a bit disorientating, even mind-blowing. And if so, that's great. Keep listening because we're hoping to blow your minds. The first question we've got is from John Thatcher, a furniture designer based at Yorkshire Art Space. And his question, quite appropriately, is, is there a centre to the universe? And if so, where is our solar system galaxy in relation to the centre? The centre of the universe is a concept that lacks a co coherent definition in modern astronomy. And according to the standard cosmological theories on the shape of the universe, it has no centre. 
And so in the past, historically, different people have suggested various locations of the centre of the universe, uh, mythological cosmologies, including an axis mundi, the central axis of a flat earth that connects the earth, heavens and other realms together. And in 4th century BC, Greece, philosophers developed a geocentric model based on astronomical observations. And this model proposed that the centre of the universe lies at the centre of a very of a spherical stationary earth around which the sun, moon, planets and stars rotate. And so with the development of a heliocentric model by Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century, the sun was believed to be the centre of the universe, with the planets, including earth and stars, orbiting it. In the early 20th century, the discovery of the galaxies and the development of the Big Bang Theory led to the development of cosmological models of a homogeneous isotropic universe, which lacks a central point and is expanding at all points. But in relation to our home galaxy, the Milky Way, however, we can say that the solar system is located at a radius of 27,000 light years from the galactic centre on the inner edge of the Orion arm, one of the spiral-shaped concentrations of gas and dust. The stars in this innermost um, 10,000 light years form a bulge, and one or more bars that radiate from the bulge. The galactic centre is an intense radio source known as Sagittarius A, which is a supermassive black hole of about 4 million solar masses. It's a pretty big one. Coralie Turpin, uh, another artist based at Yorkshire Art Space, has asked if there were a centre of, of the universe, would there be an edge? <laughs> so this is, a, this is a troubling one. So, you know, we've already said that there isn't a centre. And so, yeah, it's, it's quite um, an abstract concept, I think, Paul. And you, as an artist, will like, like that a lot, the fact that there's an abstract concept here. But yeah, we can't really define an edge. You know, it's just something that's expanding. Um, the question is what it's expanding into, but um, that wasn't the question. But yeah, according to sort of modern cosmology, there isn't an edge to the universe. So it's a, it's a tricky question to, to try and give a proper answer to. But yeah, the answer is there is no edge. So it's just all expanding. So we've got several questions from Mike Weir. Uh, do you want to introduce Mike? So Mike is a is a physicist who studied at Sheffield and then um, again he was a soft matter physicist looking at um, responsive polymers and macromolecules and he ended up going to the um, ANSTO uh, which is a nuclear facility in uh, in Sydney and then he came back to Sheffield and was based in Sheffield but now has just been appointed a senior as a researcher in, um, in Nottingham, the University of Nottingham. So um, yeah, Mike is a good colleague and will be sadly missed in Sheffield. So Mike's first question is, if a black hole is really black, how do we know it is there? That's one of the fun things about physics is that we don't have to see something to know that it's there. So what we do is we, we don't actually see a black hole with conventional light or a blackness in space. But what we do see is the presence of a black hole. As a black hole drags gas and other matter and stars into it uh, via its massive gravitational attraction. So this matter starts to heat up to such immense heat it emits x-rays before it's swallowed by the black hole. And what's what's really exciting is someone who actually, um, I did my undergraduate degree, a project where I read about detection of gravitational waves. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a Nobel Prize awarded for the discovery of gravitational waves, which are really, really weak signals that can be detected across the ether, across vast distances. And so that got the Nobel Prize in 2017, so that we can start to look at some of these really uh, immense gravitational um, objects, these black holes that are huge, and we can try and compare what we see, because that, those things we can't see, light escape, light doesn't escape from these things. So we're trying to, I think we're entering the dawn of a new astronomy, 
where we can use gravitational waves to understand the the sort of the perturbations of the how these objects affect space and time, and then look at it with our conventional optical astronomy and uh, infrared astronomy. So we can start to see what happens when black holes collide. So I think it's a very exciting. Well, my colleagues would have you believe it's a very exciting point in time where we can start to correlate these two together. So we're going to learn a lot that's going to tell us new things about our universe. Okay, the next question I think leads on quite well from that one, really. It's uh, it's from Mark Ridley, who describes himself as a disruptive technologist, communicator, photography maker, and physics evangelist. And Mark's question is, as we look further into the universe, we look further back in time. The James Webb Space Telescope will allow us to see further back than we have seen before. Could you tell me how far back and what state the universe was in at this time? So we're hoping to be able to see a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Uh, before that, um, so after the Big Bang, when there's this great expansion of the universe, uh, which has continued ever since, the protons, neutrons and all the other particles were, were, were super, super hot. And we, we don't ever see any light from those kinds of objects because it was that we hadn't cooled down sufficiently. So what, what we're hoping to see with this telescope is this the formation of these first stars, these first celestial objects which formed after the Big Bang. What we want to learn about is how they formed, uh, what was the state of the of the universe at that time, you know, how dense was it, what was the, the gas that, that collapsed and formed these um, these stars. So these are really the factories of the universe that created the matter that, that is us today. So, you know, understanding how they created all the materials and the atoms that are the, the engines of creation for our universe. Okay, the next question is from Zeta Rahill, who's an artist based in Dublin. And her question is, how many different lights are contained in the sun? I've heard of ultraviolet, but what others are there? And I'll probably start to answer this by saying, all the colours in the rainbow, really. Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting you say the colours of the rainbow, Paul, because the light that we see is only a very small part of the radiation that comes from the sun. So we, we see this very narrow region of, of wavelengths that goes from, you know, the ultraviolet blue up into the reds and up into the infrareds. That's what our eyes detect. But we know that there's radio waves. So, you know, some people will tell you when the, the, the sun is very active, the, there's very strong radio signals. So why communications can be swamped. And obviously we know about the infrared, the heat that comes from our sun uh, that, that keeps this planet the way it is, keeps it a sustainable planet and long may it stay that way. And then we come back to the, the light, you know, the UV light that we... We try and you know stop from damaging our skin by blocking it. And then we've got this amazing visual signal. So we should never look at the sun. Obviously, yeah, we see the light and you know cast onto a, a many objects, and it, it's very powerful. Beyond that, we know that there's um, intense X-rays and gamma rays, and so we're very fortunate. I think that a lot of the other radiation that comes, like the, the ionization of the, of the of the particles, a lot of that gets slammed into the poles by our magnetic field. So. So the Earth is, is very fortunate that, you know, we get this amazing protective shield from our atmosphere and our magnetic field of our planet. We also have this amazing uh, life force from the from the sun, this, this light source and heat source that, you know, gives us liquid water, which is what we need to survive amongst other things and light for our plants to grow. So it makes us uh, self-sufficient. Okay, next question is from Mark Goodwin, who's a poet, climber and balancer based in Leicester. And uh, this question came through a phone call 
that I had with Mark a little while ago. And uh, I'll, I'll sort of read out Mark's question from that, from that phone call. So these are Mark's words, really. We've just had a conversation where you're sitting in Sheffield and I'm sitting in Leicester. And this conversation took place at the same time, just now, or I guess with an almost completely negligible time difference. Sheffield and Leicester are in the same time zone, after all. Now, physics tells us this would not have been the case if I'd been sitting on Saturn during the phone call, i.e. the just now on Saturn would be, very different, would be a very different just now to that in Sheffield. Why is this the case? See, I, I disagree. I think if we could be on Saturn now and somehow we could synchronise ourselves such that we had our clocks at the same time, then we would be experiencing the same time. What is the problem is that we can't communicate across that distance, have a conversation without a massive delay. I don't know what the the time difference would be, but let's say let's say, you know, the, the classic one is, you know, the, the the sun is eight minutes nineteen seconds away. So if the sun was suddenly to disappear now, we would not find that out for eight minutes nineteen. But that now is the same now as when the sun disappeared as a thought experiment. So time is the same for all of us. Time's arrow, you know, time progresses for all of us. No one's invented a time machine yet, although we would like to have one at some points, but we never met anyone who's invented one, so that probably means they don't exist. But yeah, I think the time is the same for us all, whether or not we're on Saturn. It's just the communication, you know, and this is the this is the problem, isn't it? You know, we can think about uh, being in Sheffield and being in Leicester. We can drive between the two places and we experience those distances as, as human beings. But the concept of a, of a distance between us and Saturn is beyond our comprehension. It's it's way beyond travelling to Leicester, um, such that you know that that delay, even for radio waves which travel at the speed of light to to, to travel, takes fantastic um, time. And so you think that the Voyager probe that that was set off in the in the late seventies is now just reaching the edge of our of our solar system, and that's been travelling for fourteen or fifty years. That's a really long way away. And to communicate with something like that is is fantastically uh, difficult, you know, but they're still keeping it alive. So I think time is a funny one. I think what this question reminds us of is that the universe is a really, really big place. And our solar system is a really, really big place compared to the human scale on which we live. It's quite sobering, I think, to think, you know, we don't ever have to encounter these distances where we can't comprehend them, I don't think, in our, our brains. Um, thinking on a different scale altogether, is there a possibility that time could operate differently between the human scale that we all inhabit and the tiny scale of particles that are affected by quantum mechanics? In terms of that question, uh, yeah, I mean, we know that particles have probabilities of being in many different places. Again, that, that's what confuses the most people about quantum mechanics is that it's not like a normal rational uh, you know, you leave your your hat where you left it on your hat rack, and it's there. You know, in the quantum world, your hat's got a likelihood of being in many different places. That's what some people think about in terms of the quantum world: the fact that um, there's this ambiguity. But in terms of time, quantum processes are very fast. In, in some instances, they, they happen much, much faster than you know nanoseconds, or a thousand million times faster than a second. So. That does feel like a different time zone to us, doesn't it? You know, these things are happening much, much faster than we can than we can cope with. You know, but in terms of 
time being different? No, I think time's the same. I think that's a general, general basic law. Time behaves the same for, for everything, really. So I've got another question from Mike here, uh, Andrew's colleague. And this, I think, in a way, brings us to the, to the human scale. And uh, yeah, a couple of considerations about art and science. Our meeting point, really, Andrew. Mike asks a question. Can you give an example of an artist who is really connected to science? And what sort of art do they make? So I'm going to answer this one. We're going to have to switch into the past tense here. The one that springs most directly to mind is Leonardo da Vinci, who made hundreds of very meticulous drawings based on his observations of nature, the flow of water, growth patterns in plants, and perhaps most famously, his extensive studies of human anatomy. He was also a hugely imaginative inventor, visualising as an engineer ideas vastly ahead of his time conceptually inventing the parachute, the helicopter, an armoured fighting vehicle, the use of concentrated solar power, interestingly enough, a calculator, a rudimentary theory of plate tectonics and the double hull. He greatly advanced the state of knowledge in the fields of anatomy, astronomy, civil engineering, optics and the study of water hydrodynamics. I'll be honest, I used to doubt if his ideas, of which there were many, filling no less than 5,000 pages of sketchbooks, were actually transferable into engineering situations. But very recently I found out this amazing story. In 1502, Leonardo produced a drawing of a single span, 240 metre, that's 720 foot bridge, as part of a civil engineering project for the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid II of Istanbul. The bridge was intended to span an inlet at the mouth of the Bosphorus known as the Golden Horn. Bayezid did not pursue the project because he believed that such a construction was impossible. But Leonardo's vision was resurrected in 2001 when a smaller bridge based on his design was constructed in Norway. A stone model of the bridge was evaluated in 2019, last year, by Massachusetts Institute of Technology Researchers. The self-supporting 1 to 500 scale model was built from 126 3D printed stone cross sections held together without mortar. Researchers concluded the bridge would have been able to support its own weight and maintain stability under load and wind shear forces. Quite amazing when you think that the design began as a vision that appeared in Leonardo's mind's eye, transferred onto a piece of paper as a drawing about 500 years ago. Another contemporary artist who springs to mind with big ambitious ideas and with a real connection to science is my friend Anthony Bennett, who also featured in the Festival of Mind this year. He's been developing an amazing series of works, both sculpture and performance based, in collaboration with Professor Duncan Cameron from the Department of Animal and Plant Sciences. So another question from Mike Weir. Uh, how can working with artists help science, Andrew? My take on this is I think Art and science together can help to reach a, a very varied audience that may initially be put off by the sciences aspects. don't know why, but um, people find science difficult. And it is difficult, but I think it's actually very rewarding. And I think art done properly can provide a route into difficult and often complex science as good art-science collaborations make exhibits which are artistic and have often abstract forms that help people learn or understand new ideas and concepts. That's not dumbing down science, but I think it's actually our role as educators or the academy, you know, the university itself, is to disseminate our knowledge, obviously in learner journals and to 
colleagues across the world, but to, to the general public. I think general public wants to know that, that scientists are doing exciting things. And I think having representations, whether that be a you know thematic dance or ballet or or collages or paintings or visuals, like you know, some of the graphics that you're seeing and work that Paul and I have done are very visual VR type simulations. And I think those kind of things are very exciting ways of getting across again, very abstract ideas. Ideas that, you know, we hadn't initially thought about that have some very fun, hopefully fun underlying um, science, whether it be physics or chemistry or biology. Paul, as an artist, what do you feel is the biggest thing you've learned from working with scientists? I've learned a great deal about the world that we live in. And I think I've developed something of a more complete sense of where, well, where we fit into that world, our physical situation as, as people inhabiting this extraordinary meshwork of relationships that we call the world. I've also learned about wanting to make this world a better place either through conservation, I'm thinking about Professor Tim Burkhead, who I worked with on the first Death of the Mind in 2012, and his passionate and loving devotion to British seabirds. I've gained a better understanding of the human brain from my discussions with Professor Pete Redgrave in 2014. Now, the last six years, an understanding of the development of a new, less polluting form of very white paint, um, developed through research into very white beetles, or even uh, just recently, a new kind of quantum solar cell with Andrew and, and Professor Richard Jones. All of these things, the aim is to make the world a better place and to make our our place in that world more sustainable and, and, and kind of less damaging. The thing that surprised and impressed me most is the fact that scientific research is such a wonderful collaborative effort. One of the researchers I met at an amazing research facility in France called the ESRF, a couple of years ago. It's a bit like CERN, it's a great big huge circular facility where electrons fly around in a big circle. She described the facility as being like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, a place where people from all nations meet and work together with a free and open exchange of ideas. And, and I think that's that's quite utopian, you know, in a good way. You know, it's an ideal world. Okay, so I've got another question from Mike Weir. Are the beautiful structures nature produces art? I noticed that you've used a lowercase a for art here, Mike. You've also put the word art in quotation marks. Rather than answering this question directly, I'd like to ask a question in return. Is there really a distinction between art and nature, or between nature and culture, between what we refer to as the human world and the world of nature? Where's the boundary? Where's the separation point? What, in fact, if anything, makes us so very special as humans? Personally, I'll take a rather radical view, one that challenges the idea of human exceptionalism, that we are somewhat separate from, even above nature. I think we're very much part of nature, whether we like it or not. And recent events, such as the coronavirus outbreak and climate change, are proving this more than ever. But going back to a less worrying topic, this topic about um, are the beautiful things that nature produces art. I would say that these structures are art, lowercase a, because they're part of the same generative set of processes that produce the ordered beautiful shapes, patterns, forms and contrasts of nature as art, capital A, big A art, art world art, a purely human cultural endeavour. That was all a bit philosophical, so there is an easy answer. 
I was on a beach in North Yorkshire the other day, near Scarborough actually, where, where, where Andrew's from. Right. And I was looking at beautiful white chalk boulders, some stained a little green with algae and bearing lines of gorgeously coloured flint nodules, arranged like musical notes on a stage. Put the best ones in a gallery, that would be one of the best exhibitions I could ever choose to see. Paul, isn't that a gallery there? Like, you know, like what you're seeing out in the wild, is that not the, the perfect gallery for it? Like... That's the gallery of nature. Okay. Okay, so now we've got a question from Stephanie Berg, a physicist, and uh, I'll let Andrew introduce Stephanie. So Stephanie Berg was a, a student who I managed to persuade to come to Sheffield to do a PhD, looking at, uh, she was originally looking at solar cells, so plastic, clever plastic that turns uh, sunlight into electricity. We convinced her that she wanted to understand colour in nature, so structural colour based on like peacock feather type things. So she wanted to make an ultra white paint. That was her PhD, but she's still in Sheffield working on a different project now, making coatings to protect metal. She's a very talented uh, scientist with a background in chemical engineering. So Stephanie's question is, how do we go about drawing and imagining things that we cannot see with the naked eye? And how important is it to our understanding of the world that we do this? So I'm going to start answering this question by saying that imagination is absolutely not limited to sight. Language, and in particular poetry, can and does convey some of the most extraordinary images encoded in words. Music propels us into intense, spine-tingling emotional states. Even so, I think that human beings are still very highly visually orientated creatures. There's a primacy to vision. We can see colours for one thing, something that I'm delighted to say we've inherited from our primate ancestors. Colour is very important to me as a painter. The rich poetic language of colour, how our subjective responses to colours manages to be both incredibly strong but incredibly indefinite and personal at the same time. One thing I've noticed time and again when I've been invited to lectures and presentations on physics is the fact that physicists often use slides containing different types of visual information to illustrate points. Referring to the ways that I've seen you present your research, Stephanie, which is very exciting and has helped with the search for a very white paint that, that Andrew mentioned earlier, you might start your presentation with an image of a beetle then show an optical microscope image of the beetle's wing. Then you zoom in. You might show an electron microscope of the scales on that beetle's wing. Then some data from a synchrotron facility, and you use that data to build a 3D image of a single scale. Then a rotating three-dimensional computer-generated image of the internal structure of that scale. And after that, you might move into the more rarefied specialist kinds of imaging and illustration graphics representing data sets, and finally abstract mathematical representations of your findings in the forms of graphs and equations. I think all of this adds up to a vision of research in the mind's eye, a kind of virtual construction from a lot of different angles that helps us to properly understand it. Next question is from Rachel Kilbride, another physicist. So yeah, Rachel Kilbride is a, a fan year PhD student um, who's on trying to understand how the a nanostructure in a, a mixture of a polymer and a small molecule that can turn sunlight into electricity, how that nanostructure forms, what size is that nanostructure, how can you optimise that structure to get the best 
low cost solar cells such that we can print them, you know, at scale, solve, solve all our energy needs. So she's working on that problem. Okay, so Rachel's question begins with a statement really that science and art are usually taught as separate subjects. And how do you think the connection between art and science could be integrated more into teaching? So my thoughts on this are that there's a point in life where we have to make choices between art and science. And I wonder how natural this is. I noticed there's been a great deal of emphasis on STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, maths, to which has now been added a capital A to make STEAM, a capital A being art. I'm glad to say that art has been added to this acronym. This seems a lot more natural because like Leonardo, I think most people have an interest in both art and science. And I think that's kind of it to be encouraged really. There's a thing that's sometimes referred to as the two cultures, art and science, but I think this is what might be called a category error in philosophy. If you imagine art and science as being two circles in a Venn diagram, or even easier, art and science as two balloons, I think there's another great big circle or another big balloon, the balloon of culture that they both float in, along with other wonderful things like food, music and sport. I think there's really one big culture, to be honest, not, not two cultures. Anthony Bennett, the artist who I mentioned earlier, has recently been working on an imaginary class timetable for the ideal school week. On this timetable will be regular classes in art and science. Who might be the best teacher for our art and science class? Maybe Leonardo da Vinci. I think it'd have been great fun in a classroom. The next question is from Bruce Langridge, who's a head of interpretation of the National Botanic Garden of Wales. And his question, very much a physics question. Down at the quantum level, a quark seems to be the smallest thing. But what is a quark made from? And what is that thing that makes a quark made from? Is there an infinity of smallness? I think this is a question for you, Andrew. That's a, that's a, a good question. Um, so in particle physics, we find atoms are a bit like Russian dolls, in that the more you zoom in, the more you find. Quarks are possibly made up of other things, but given that they were formed almost in, instantaneously after the Big Bang, and then went on quite quickly to form protons, neutrons and atoms, it's quite difficult to recreate the conditions to see what came first. <laughs> that doesn't stop some physicists thinking about potential zero particles called prions. But again, as physicists, we need to have experiments to be able to detect those. And those energies are immense. So we need to have a testable experiment to do that. So that's work in progress, I'm afraid. Next question is from Kath Williamson, artist based in Sheffield. Here we're going to try and bring everything together now. Kath's question is, Speaking as someone who knows very, very little about the universe, my first question is, is there a dominant theory about the universe that is generally accepted within the grounds of scientific exploration? And if so, essentially, what is that theory? I imagine such a theory identifies forms and processes, so it'd be interesting to have those identified so I could have some vocabulary to start thinking about the sheer vastness of this subject. So, Paul, I've tried to sort of summarise some concepts and some ideas that I think are important. So we talked earlier on, we talked about the Big Bang. That's a theory that describes how we think the universe was born, and we have some evidence for that. 
in the, the cosmic microwave background radiation. And then we have Newtonian physics. It may seem very antiquated, but it's a very powerful physics and it describes forces and gravity. And for a lot of applications, even launching satellites into space nowadays, the equations are just perfectly valid. They've got the right level of accuracy to be to, to do the job. We've also got electromagnetism and quantum mechanics. Uh, so electromagnetism describes electricity and magnetism. Quantum mechanics describes what goes on at the very small scale, on the atomic scale, and how particles have got this strange behavior that differs from the sort of rational things that we, we experience in our everyday life. And then we've got this standard model of particles, which tells us about these zoo of particles, electrons, protons, the quarks, the, all these other leptons, and also led to us to, to discover the, the hypothesis of this Higgs boson, which was discovered a few years back at CERN. Written. It's a great physics achievement. So rather than just having one unified theory, we, at the moment we have a series of models and theories that describe particular aspects of, of the universe. And I'd argue that together these, this sort of uh, menu of very important physics concepts and, and models will help you to understand the universe more than, well, more than you did at the start, hopefully. So I think those kinds of things are important. I guess you could say that uh, coming up with a grand unified theory or, or coming up with grand unified theories will require guts. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey from the greatness of the universe to the equally impressive smallness of the nanoverse and for stopping to admire the view with us halfway. If you'd like to see some of the work that Andrew and I have been working on for Fettle the Mind 2020, then please visit Nanocade, which is part of Futurecade at the Millennium Gallery, Sheffield, between 17th and 27th of September. All being well. You can also follow a series of other light journeys on our website, harvestinglight.org. Huge thanks once again to those of you who have thoughtfully contributed questions to help frame our journey. Of course, we've only managed to take in a tiny fraction of what could have been discussed, so maybe we'll have to do another journey sometime soon. Maybe we could call this light, the universe, and a little more of everything. Thank you very much. It's been uh, interesting to, to field quite a diverse array of questions, and I've really enjoyed chatting with Paul and understanding thinking about things a bit more than, than I had done before. So thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.